Well, I, I don't know about you, we, I, I feel like we've been having a great time in Ephesians. Um, uh, this, this is the last time that we're going to be in Ephesians for a little while. Um, next week we've got Cafe Church, Tim Chester's coming to speak. Uh, the following week it's our carol service, I think we're going to do something different between Christmas and New Year. So it's going to be nearly a month before we get back to Ephesians. So I thought it would be good for us to get to the end of this uh, very long sentence that Paul writes. In the original it's one sentence, in the English it's broken up. So verse 3 down to verse 14. So we're going to try and finish off down to verse 14 today. I feel like, um, I don't know, some kind of uh, waiter is serving up like a seven-course meal because this is so rich. If we can get like a tenth of the sweetness and goodness that there is in these verses, then we'll go home feeling replete. That's a good word, isn't it? We'll go home feeling full. So um, let's uh, see how we go. One of the things we often hear in our culture is people longing to be rich. Um, This week I was talking to someone, a friend of mine, about their work and after expressing how hard their job was going and how miserable and boring it was, they said to me, but I've got a Euro lottery ticket and if I win that tonight, I'll never have to work again. In other words, all my problems will have gone away. I'll be free. I'll be in control of my own destiny. I don't think this person did win the Euro Lottery. I would have, I would have known about it by now, I think. But um, the idea of wanting to be rich. We've spent ten weeks looking at this sentence in Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, verse 11 marks a change. Paul has been speaking about amazing cosmic realities. But in verse 11, he brings it right down to earth and starts to get personal. And he's looking his readers right in the eye. He's been talking about all this stuff that God has planned and done. And then in verse 11, he starts to talk about we. In verse 13, he starts to talk about you. Um, This big theme, the cosmic scope of things. And if there's one word that sums it all up, I think it would be the word wealth as he closes this breathless eulogy what Paul is really saying to these people in Ephesus is do you realise how rich you are you are rich beyond your wildest dreams actually he prays this very thing in the next section that Sam read to us in verse 18 He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches or the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul is writing so that they would realise who they are. Paul's saying to them, open your eyes. Your perspective in life is so important, isn't it? It's one reason why we've entirely series captivated Imagine with me two people who work in the same job and the work is very sweaty and very hard. It's repetitive and there's few breaks. The shifts are 16 hours at a time. 
And let's say that the two guys are being paid. One of them is getting paid like £10 per shift. And he just feels like a slave. Every time he moves to lift something, he's thinking, this is not fair. I hate this job. And inside he's thinking, tomorrow I'm going to tell my boss where he can show his stupid job. £10 for 16 hours. This is slave labour. But the other guy, as he starts the job, the owner of the company wanders over, this is a stupid illustration, and he whispers in his ear, when you're finished, I'm going to give you a million pounds. Same job, same conditions, how do you think the second guy would approach his work? Still hard and horrible, but his whole perspective has been lifted. He can endure everything that's thrown at him because he knows it will be worth it. He can almost whistle in the face of hardship because his eye is on the million quid. He's not being paid a tenner. I want to suggest to you this afternoon that many people live their whole life like the first guy. Life's not fair. It's miserable. I don't get what I deserve. Paul is saying that it is possible to live differently if only you know who you are. And if only you know what God has done for you. If only you could open your eyes and see that you are rich beyond your wildest dreams. There's so much in these verses here. And um, my, my, prep's been a, my preparation this week has been a little bit contained to one thing or another. It's hard to know where to start really. But let's break it open by thinking about three key ideas in, in, as Paul's logic. It's an amazing writer, Paul. He, he, these words are so full, bubbling over. I think in short, there are three key themes there. Paul is saying to them, you have it all. You can know that you have it all, which is a slightly different thing. You might have it all and not know that you've got it all. But you have it all. You can know that you have it all. And the third thing I want us to get to is the fact that we haven't seen anything yet. I think the slides are changing, so I'm going to leave you to do it, Andrew. They're quite simple today, anyway. So, let's think, first of all, about you have it all. I want you to notice, first of all, a contrast. This is really key to these verses. There's a contrast between verse 11 and 12, where Paul is speaking about himself and, 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 and others, we. In him, we were also chosen. But when you get to verse 13, Paul says, and you also were included in Christ. I want you to notice, first of all, a big contrast there between Paul speaking about this is what's happened to us and it can also happen to you. That's the, the, these four verses are split that way. Very striking. Paul is a Jewish man and he's writing here primarily to Gentiles or non-Jews. And Paul is saying to them, we Jews have it all. And guess what? So do you Gentiles. That's, that's the thrust of this section. Paul's own life shows this. He was, at one time, an intolerant, proud Jewish man 
who thought he was right and Gentiles were dogs. He thought Gentiles were people to be thrown into prison or looked down upon. He, 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 he was very proud of his religious credentials and heritage. Now, however, something has changed for Paul and he is absolutely thrilled to say that people that he formerly thought were outsiders are now welcome. Those who he thought God had rejected, now he's saying, you can have it all. Just look with me into chapter 3. And you'll get a sense of that. This, Paul's speaking about his own ministry, and in verse 6, um, where are we? This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. In another place, Paul says, Although I am the less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Here's a man who once was intolerant. Now he's saying, the greatest thrill of my heart is to preach to Gentiles that they can have it all. The unsearchable riches of Christ. That was his job. That was the job that God had given to him. I think there's a sense when you read Ephesians that there are some of the believers there felt like they were second class Christians and they had this idea that in the church there are good important Christians and then there's me over here these people have got it all I've got some of it and there's kind of a distinction here second class Christians I don't quite have access to what other people have access to. They're special in God's eyes, but I'm not in the quiet in the same category as them. One of Paul's great themes in this letter is that there are no second-class Christians. If you're a Christian, you, you, you have it all. You are rich beyond your wildest dreams. You can never be half a Christian. If, you're, if you are in, it's all yours. One writer says, within God's eternal purpose in Christ, Gentile believers were incorporated into the one people of God. They share in God's heritage. Their share in God's heritage was as complete as those of Jewish birth who first hoped in Christ. Thus, in this new community of the redeemed, there are no first or second class citizens. Just flick over the page of me, we'll get to this, but in chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul says exactly this. He's writing to people who think they're second class. Just uh, read with me. Um, this is Ephesians 2 verse 11 on the next page. This is Paul's argument. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. That done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Later on in verse 19, Paul says, Consequently, you, you Gentiles, you Gentile dogs, this is Paul speaking, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself, as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That whole argument is what, ele- what verse 11 to 14 of chapter 1 I talk about. In him, we were also chosen and you also were included in Christ. There are no second class Christians, Paul is saying, you can come on in and enjoy all the fullness that God has given to you. Don't be feeling unwelcome, don't wait outside, don't hesitate on the doormat thinking that you can't quite come and take a seat. We are true Jews, Paul is saying, and you are welcome to come and have it all with us. I want you to see something important here that is emphasised that is not so clear in our NIV. I'm sorry, I keep doing this. I'm sorry. But it's re- this is really important. If you've got a different version, you might be ahead of me. When Paul says in verse 11, in him we were also chosen. Can you see that? The word chosen. That word is not the same word, for example, that's there in verse 4, where Paul says he chose us. In fact, that word in verse 11 only appears in this one place in the whole of the New Testament. And the word chosen is not really a great translation. You'll see, in the, there's a little footnote in our church Bibles here next to verse 11, that says it's something to do with being made heirs. So let's just explore this word. That word chosen is a very unusual word that is talking about being chosen by lot. You know what being chosen by lot is? When, you know, they, they cast lots for Jesus' clothes when he died, didn't they? In the Old Testament, this has got a very special significance for Jewish people. So, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were promised a land of their own and just before they came into promised land uh, Moses took a great census there's a book in the Bible all about it called Numbers it's called Numbers because it's all about numbers they counted all the tribes and all the people and Moses uh, wrote in, in Numbers chapter 26 I'll just read it to you the Lord said to Moses the land that is the promised land is to be allotted to them as an inheritance based on the number of names to a larger group give a larger inheritance to a smaller group give a smaller one each is to receive its inheritance according to the number of those listed be sure that the land is distributed by lot 
What each group inherits will be according to the names for its ancestral tribe. Each inheritance is to be distributed by lot among the larger and smaller groups. So the promised land was divided up tribe by tribe by lots. And each little portion was given to one of the tribes and clans. So out of all the land, each tribe had a part. And they could say, that's my bit. That is my portion of the promised land. It had been chosen for them by lot. That was their inheritance. And it would be forever passed on through the generations. So this word that Paul uses in Ephesians doesn't just mean chosen. It is a word that conveys the idea of inheritance. It really means in Christ we have become an inheritance. Which is quite important because that is a word about riches. Let me, um, let me move on a little bit with that thought. Because the Israelites understood this idea so clearly, there's the land, we've cast lots for it, I've got my portion. There are other places in the Bible where God uses this idea to tell them that they are his portion. Out of all the nations of the world, God has chosen them. Not by chance, that's not the important emphasis, but he's, they are his treasured possession. In the same way that each tribe could say, that's my land, God could say of these people, you're my. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy. This, God says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And from the hand of Pharaoh. Later on in Deuteronomy, God says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But the real clincher comes towards the end of Deuteronomy when Moses is describing what happened, and he says this. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind and fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. In other words, when Paul says, in him we were also chosen, what Paul is saying is, we are the apple of God's eye. We are the thing that God is inheriting. Out of all the people in the world, we are the ones that God is looking forward to possessing. We are God's wealth. 
As a dad, I can say a pale reflection of this. Uh, I don't embarrass my children, but I, I was present at all the births of my kids. And on every occasion I cried. Didn't think I would. But on every occasion I cried. There were times when I would go into their rooms when they were babies and just look at them. And inside I would feel like nothing else mattered. I wasn't aware at that moment of how much money I had in the bank, but at that moment I felt rich. Why? What a treasure God had given to me. They are mine. They are precious. These precious children are my wealth. That, that, that's a pale reflection of what Paul is saying here about himself and his Jewish friends and colleagues. In him we were also chosen means in him we, we are the apple of his eye. His treasured possession. His inheritance. When God, Paul is saying, when God looks at us, it is reverently, it is, if it, it is as if his eyes fill up because he's so proud that we are his. More than that, Paul goes on to say in verse 11, this is God's planned it all this way. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. God has planned for us to be the apple of his eye all along. This is our destiny. This is who we are. God has destined us to be his treasure. We, Paul is saying, are the true Jews. The reason I've laboured that is because when you get to verse 13, I want you to get the impact of this. This should make the hairs on the back of our neck stand up. When he says in verse 13, and you also were included, can you imagine hearing that as a Gentile? All your life you've been told, stand outside. Now Paul says, we are the apple of his eye, and you also are included. You're in. You have it all. You're the apple of his eye too. You and us together, we are his treasured possession. What an amazing thing for a previously intolerant Jewish man to say to outsiders. If you were here last week, we were looking at verse 10. And this is the whole point of verse 10. God is at work in history to bring all things together under the Lordship of Christ. That is the pinnacle of Paul's theology. God is restoring harmony, breaking down walls, destroying divisions. Can I suggest to you this afternoon that your value as an individual in the end comes down to who loves you and treasures you. We, we see this with our celebrity culture, don't we? Young girls go to see One Direction. And they come home screaming, Niall looked at me. Harry looked at me. <laughs> and they'll scream and scream. He saw me. He noticed me. Now I am important and special. 
My life is worth living. This is the best day of my life. You can multiply that by a million times, a million times, a million. If God is involved, wasn't Niall or Harry Styles who noticed you? It was God who noticed you. If God thinks you're special, every day is the best day of your life, isn't it? Do you want to be rich? Do you want to be wealthy? Here is the secret. You are rich beyond your wildest dreams because God has destined you to be his treasured possession. These words are just amazing. Before we move on, I just want you to notice how these Gentiles come into this. Paul says in verse 13, just look with me as we pause for a minute, just to think about the how. You also, you Gentiles who used to be outside, are now included in Christ. How? You also are included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. This is an absolutely brilliant definition of the Christian right here. I've said to you before, I think we should lose the word Christian partly because it doesn't mean anything anymore. People say, you know, I'm a Christian. Religion, Christian. The word Christian doesn't come in the Bible really. Maybe, maybe one or two places in Acts the way Paul defines a Christian here is to say they are in Christ. In Christ. That is a great definition of a Christian. That's a better way to look at Christianity altogether. So when I say to you, you are rich beyond your wildest dreams, you can have it all, what I'm really saying is if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, then excuse me, you really do have it all. This verse spells out how you get included in Christ. You heard the word of truth and you believed it and therefore you were sealed. So a Christian is someone who believes the good news of salvation. At some point in your life, someone told you what God had done for you through Christ and by God's grace you believed it and grasped it and embraced it this is the good news of the gospel this, this is what puts people in Christ the truth is this, this is the gospel message this is what we preach and proclaim isn't it we are sinners separated from God actually Heading not for heaven, but for hell. We deserve nothing. We are lost and helpless. But God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to live the life that we couldn't or didn't and then to swap places with us 
and give us the reward of his obedient life and he takes the consequences of our wrong life and takes the punishment that we deserve. It falls on him instead of us. We get his crown, he gets our shame. Paul's point here is that to have it all you have to lose the idea that you deserve it all. Becoming a Christian then is not trying harder to be good. It's not hoping for the best one day. Becoming a Christian is believing this message. I'm a sinner. Christ came to save me from my sins. When you believe that message, Paul says, you'll be included in Christ. Faith. Believing the word of truth. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you are free, you are saved, you are included. God is your Father, heaven becomes your destiny. There is no second class Christian. When you believe in Jesus, you have it all. You are rich beyond your wildest dreams. Paul says something more here though. Oh man, there is so much in these verses. He says something about a seal. That's not like a fishy thing. Um, You were marked in him with a seal. What's the idea of the seal? You heard, you believed, you were marked with a seal. Seals, I I think there's three things at least about seals. Number one, it's a mark of ownership. In the olden days, if you were sending some cargo, you would put your seal on the crates so that when they got to a destination, everyone would know that that stuff was your stuff. Sometimes farmers do it with sheep now, don't they? My sister-in-law's got some sheep, a growing flock of sheep, and um, there's loads of sheep in Wales. As you know, more sheep than people in Wales, I think. But they've had to like spray paint little coloured marks on them. I I forget what colour they are, I think they're red. I stayed there for a week recently to look after them, didn't I, in in the summer. And and one of my jobs was to go in the morning. I felt like a proper farmer. I had to walk around the field and check that none of the sheep are like ill or collapsed. And I'm looking around for all the, I forget now, I think they were red. Some of the blue, some blue ones had like crept into the field as well, I think. Trying to get in on the act. But a seal is a mark of ownership. Everyone knows that that stuff is yours if it's got your seal on it. Secondly, seals are a mark of authenticity. If you're a king or some important person, you issue a new law, not only would you sign a document, anyone could forge your signature, you sign a document, you roll it up, and you've got a special ring with a seal on it that's very hard to forge. You melt some wax, you drip a little bit on the edge, and you stick your, your, your ring into it, it's a seal to say, this document's the real deal. It's authentic. And thirdly, I think a seal is a mark of security. Uh, our internet went down at home this week, and I had to go and buy a new router from PC World. I'm not really a technical person. But I noticed when I got home, the box had a seal on it, and it said, if this seal's broken, it's been tampered with. You need to take it back to the shop. And thankfully the seal was all okay. We opened it up and it all worked. 
the children without internet for a day and a half. They were, honestly, they were climbing the walls. But a seal is a mark of security. It's a sign that the thing you've bought is secure and correct and all there and right. There's nothing missing. So Paul says here, when you, when you, you heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, and you were marked in him with a seal. What was the seal you were marked with? It wasn't a blob of wax. It wasn't a bit of red spray paint out of a tin. You don't become a Christian and then suddenly get a mark on your forehead. It doesn't work that way. The seal is the promised Holy Spirit. The seal is not a dead thing. The seal that marks you is a living thing. The, the way my daft mind works that, that, it reminds me of those photographs in Harry Potter have you seen the Harry Potter films when you look at a photograph and, you, and the people are like moving around in the photograph and you can talk to them you, you buy a newspaper and the article is like talking to you it, it, this reminds me of that you, you've been marked not with some inanimate object but you've been sealed by the very life giving spirit of God in John's Gospel, Jesus went to Jerusalem and it says in John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, he stood up and said with a loud voice, if anyone comes to me and drinks, he'll, he'll never go thirsty. What an amazing claim for Jesus to make. Let me read it to you. Oh, I hope I've got it right. John chapter 7. And verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then John says, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. When we believe in Christ, God's Spirit comes to indwell us. There's a lot to say about this, but here's my, here's my main point. Do, do you appreciate that of all the religions in the world, Christianity is the only religion in the world that promises this? That you can supernaturally know that you do indeed have it all. Not because you're guessing, not because you're hoping, but because God's own spirit comes to you and says... You're mine. No other, no other religion in the world says that the God of that religion will come to you personally and reassure you and comfort you that you are his. You can know it. You can know you're a Christian in, in many ways. You can see it sometimes as your life changes. Many Christians testify to this as you see evidence that you're not what you once were. And you realise that there's a power at work in you that's changing you. Sometimes you can deduce it from the Bible. God says in the Bible that those who believe in Jesus are saved. I do believe in Jesus, therefore I'm saved. That's a kind of logical deduction. And that's very important sometimes. There are times in our lives when it seems like that's all we have. 
we have to trust the bare word of God because our emotions are all over the place. But there is a higher form of assurance even than those when God himself comes near to you in the power of his spirit and gives you a direct and compelling sense that you are his. I don't mean hearing audible voices. What I mean is that the Holy Spirit so impresses on your heart that you are his, that you know, you know his comfort and assurance. Let me show you some verses that emphasize this. Romans chapter 8. Maybe you're ahead of me here. Romans chapter 8 speaks uh, quite a bit about the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. It's on page 1134. If you've got a church Bible. If you've got a different Bible, I can't help you. Romans chapter 8. Same writer, Paul, writing to a different group of people. Verse 14, he says, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba is not a pop group. That's a Greek word, a very intimate word. Some people say it's akin to saying Daddy. Abba, Father. This 16 says what I've just been trying to say the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children the Holy Spirit comes and communicates with our own spirit to to reassure us to comfort us and to say you're mine And by that spirit of sonship, our hearts rise up. And a Christian has an instinctive desire to say, Father, Daddy. Turn with me to Galatians as well. I'll just give you three, there's probably more. Galatians chapter 4. Same writer. This is a third different group of Christians, so... This is pretty central for Paul in his theology. Galatians chapter 4, page 1170. Verse 6. Paul says there, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Interesting that it connects to inheritance, riches, wealth again. One, one final verse, but perhaps don't need to turn to it. Romans chapter 5, maybe you're ahead of me. Paul speaks there about the love of God being shed abroad. In the NIV it says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do you know that God loves you? Paul is saying here a real Christian knows that God loves them because God's spirit has marked them like a seal 
authenticating, affirming, approving, securing. The work of God's Spirit is to communicate something of God's love to your inward soul. To draw alongside you. To comfort you. To reassure you. You heard the gospel. You believed the gospel. And then you were sealed with the reassuring mark of God's Spirit. It's interesting, isn't it, that let's go Ephesians. In Ephesians, Paul talks about the Spirit being the Spirit who was promised. And that, that makes me think of Jesus with the disciples in the upper room. John, in John chapter 15, 16, John chapter 14 as well before that, Jesus uses exactly this language. Jesus actually says to the disciples on that occasion, it is for your good that I'm going away. What? You've been with us for three years. It's been brilliant. Jesus says to them, it's for your good that I go away because when I go, I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter. Not one that will be kind of at a distance, but a comforter who will indwell you and be with you. You can read John 14 John 16 Christ promises that the Spirit would come to reassure, to teach his disciples this is the sale that Paul's talking about now this raises some questions and the most likely question is why do I then feel so dry do you feel that sometimes why do I feel so dry and life less than and how come God feels so far away? When it says here, hear the gospel, believe the gospel, sealed with this reassuring spirit of sonship. This is a very complex question and our personalities and our health and our emotional lives will all play into this question. There are crises that sometimes occur in our lives that affect us too. There are times when we are at a low ebb and that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not a Christian. But I think the bigger issue here for us as evangelical Christians is that we are often afraid of our emotions. Christians are so scared of something wacky happening that we live in this objective, logical, rational, safe kind of we, we don't do feelings. Feelings are for people who are strange. We're logical and sensible. I don't think Paul would understand that kind of language. I don't think chapter 1 of Ephesians throbs with that kind of cerebral... It, it is cerebral, it is objective, it is logical, it is rational, it is coherent. But Paul is excited here because he feels something. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous evangelical and this is a quote from his well he, he took longer than we've took I think it took him about 20 uh, goals to get through chapter 1 so we've been a bit quicker than him but listen to a quote from him the teaching of I quote take it by faith is responsible, I believe, for much of the present undesirable state of the Christian church because many seem to go through their entire course of their Christian life in that way saying, we don't worry about our feelings. 
we take it all by faith. With the result that they never seem to have any experience at all. The passages that I've laboured to share with you are describing the riches that God has for you. It is possible to know him intimately. It is possible to know him in your experience, not just in your head. It is possible to feel something and for that feeling to be good and spiritual and wholesome. So my challenge today is not just that you have it all, but by God's word you can know by his spirit that you have it all. So I want to urge you to seek this. Do you hunger and thirst to know more of God's presence in your daily life? I, I don't think this happens by magic. I know it doesn't happen by magic. In my own experience, do, we, we can't afford to live the life of a lazy Christian who lives like a slave when all the while they're a son or daughter of a king. Are you spending time in the Bible are you spending time in prayer? Do you want to know God better? You have his spirit to authenticate, encourage, comfort and reassure you. Jesus said, you fathers, you, if, you, if your son asked for a fish, you, know, you wouldn't give him a scorpion. How much more will your father in heaven not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Meditate on his promises. Get alone with God and seek him. Do you know, I think one of the reasons the early Christians were so effective was that they knew this. They were rich. Their lives were radiant. Their witness was vibrant. They could face hardships and disappointments that would crush an ordinary person because their perspective was shaped by God coming near to them and telling them in their hearts, you are mine, you are rich beyond your wildest dreams. If you know that, you can face anything. If you know that, you can do anything. Maybe the reason often that we are ineffective in our lives is that we've forgotten who we are. We've drifted and not taken seriously our calling. So Paul here is telling them, Gentiles who thought they were outside, he's telling them that they're inside. You too are included. You heard the gospel, you believe the gospel. And you've been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Do you know what an evidence was that the Gentiles had come to faith? They had a massive conference in Jerusalem. All the apostles met together because Gentiles were coming to faith. And if you, you can read it in Acts 15. And what is the evidence that they come to faith? The apostles, they say, God's given them the Holy Spirit just like he gave to us. We have to let them in. That was the evidence. I wonder if the apostles came to our church, to our country, to our town, and they were examining, are these, should we let these people in? Would there be evidence to suggest that God had given us the same spirit that he'd given to them? That was how they decided whether someone was in or out. They have it all. 
And God has supernaturally sealed them with the living spirit so that they would know with power that they have it all. Incredibly though, there's more. And we need to be quick to finish this last point. What did I say the last point was? You ain't seen nothing yet. That was it. Next one. You ain't seen nothing yet. There you go. That's a bad spelling, that, isn't it? Paul says something else here. You've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. What is a deposit? Well, a deposit is when you're going to buy something and you put something down, don't you? Sometimes it's a security, like a pledge or a bond. You promise to buy something, you give a security, and then when the deal goes through, you get back the security. A deposit is different because the deposit, when you pay a deposit, it's actually part of the deal. So, it just so happens at the moment, in my, in my work, we, we've just, I've just this week, they have these things called e-signatures now they don't send you a hard copy document to sign they send you an email and you type your name in and it kind of puts your signature in the box email it back and apparently that's a legal document e-signed so this week I e-signed a lease three year lease to buy some new equipment that we need at work it's a three year deal so by my maths that's 36 payments but the first payment it's three months up front. We have to pay three months up front, that's the deposit, and then 33 more payments. And then when we get to the end, we'll own the stuff. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. This is a business term, a commercial term. The Holy Spirit that you've been sealed with is a three months up front deposit. Do you get that? It is part of a much bigger payment. And if the first payment has gone through, then all the rest will surely follow. God's paid you three months up front. He's given you the Holy Spirit. And that is a guarantee that everything else that God has promised you will come because he's paid the first instalment. Elsewhere, Paul speaks about the first fruits of the Spirit. So, imagine a harvest. Mr. Farmer has worked hard, he's ploughed the ground, this is Richard Proctor, he's ploughed the ground, he's sown the seeds on his allotment, and now he's waiting, very impatiently. And there comes a point when he goes to his field, stroke allotment, and he puts his hand in the ground, and he pulls up some lovely new potatoes, and he slips them in his bag, and he goes home to Mrs. Farmer, stroke Mrs. Proctor, and he says, get a load of these. Get a load of these. And Mrs. Farmer, struck Proctor, gets the things out of Mr. Farmer's bag, puts them in the pot, and makes a lovely shepherd's pie. And they enjoy a nice, tasty shepherd's pie. And Mr. Farmer says, oh man, that was good, wasn't it? Wasn't that good? Oh, it was tasty, wasn't it? Got a whole field of these to come still. It's the first fruits. The first potatoes, they had a great meal, and as they're eating the meal, they're thinking, man, we've got three months of this. After two months, they're fed up with it, but we've got three months of this. So many great shepherd's pies to come. 
first fruits of the Spirit. What God has given you now in your heart, reassuring you, comforting you. This is just the deposit. The first fruits. If this is what it's like now, what will it be like then? It's a foretaste. Again, some of you know I do like to cook. And I'm a sucker for making sauces. I love flavours. And it is very nice when people are coming round for a meal. And I'm imagining what it's going to be like. And I dip my spoon in. And have a little taste. Oh, that's good. I might just put a bit more salt in. Jane tells me off for putting the spoon back in. I didn't tell you that really. I don't really put the spoon back in. That's just a little joke. You have a, a little... Well, maybe sometimes I do. A little foretaste. It's a foretaste. And what, what you're doing is, oh man, that's good. When those people come tonight, they are going to love that. I'm going to love it. Everyone's going to love it. It's, it's a foretaste. The point is that what you have now is part of a much bigger possession. It is like God is saying to you, there's a lot more where that came from. Can you imagine God saying that to you? This is good, but there's a lot more where that came from. It is as though the future inheritance will be brought to fruition by God's Spirit, but the same Spirit has been sent now, ahead of time, in time, to give us a little taste on our tongues of what that incredible reality will be like then. So when God comes to you by his spirit and says, you're mine, imagine what eternity will be like. One writer says, we have a little bit of heaven in us. Namely, the Holy Spirit's presence and a guarantee of a lot more to come. When God comes to you and says, you're mine, one day you'll know it fully. When you see God changing you now, one day you'll be the finished article. What you know now is good, but it's not all there is. This is just an appetite wetter. It is a deposit that guarantees that one day you will inherit the lot. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Just as we close, I wanted to give you one, one final reference here. Paul says... In 2 Corinthians 5, let me read it to you. It is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. What Paul says there, he says, while we were in this t this, the tent of this body, we groan, we're burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And then Paul says, it is God who has made us for this very thing and has given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing 
what is to come. Sometimes people criticise Christianity and they say, Christianity, it's all pie in the sky when you die. No, it isn't. It is pie in the sky when you die, but you can have a slice now. That's the truth. It is pie in the sky when you die, but you can have a great massive slab of it now. Here. And now. In the power of God's Spirit. We've reached the end of Paul's cry of praise, this eulogy. One long sentence. God is to be praised for the blessings he's given in the heavenly realms. Paul started it with praise. He ends by saying that this is all to the praise of his glory. The Father planned it before the world began. Christ has come to deliver it through his death on the cross. The Spirit makes it come alive in our hearts. Paul is saying that we are all caught up in the grand sweep of history. Wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. Fully included. Not second class. Precious to God supernaturally comforted and enabled and on top of all of that this is just a foretaste of the amazing hope that we haven't seen nothing yet if you are in Christ your life is not small God has injected greatness and dignity and hope into our little lives God is your father Christ is your saviour the Holy Spirit is your life and if you are not in Christ can I ask what else are you living for one writer I was reading said sometimes he talks to people he said I can't be a Christian because it would stop me me from sleeping with who I want to sleep with and the writer says you're going to put that in comparison with this What what else are you living for that delivers this kind of wealth? If you are messing around with something else, you are living like a pauper when you could be living like a son or daughter of the king. You can come and be included in this by believing the good news about what God has done for you in Christ to the praise of his great glory. Amen.